0: Jonah in chapter 3, it's on page 754, if you're using a pew Bible. Jonah 3, I'll pray first and then I'll read it. Dear Father, we have already eaten well today. You have fed us. We have participated in the gospel through partaking of the Lord's Supper. Uh, and now we, we, we turn our attention, we turn our hearts towards the feast that you serve to us in your holy word. So I pray that we would receive your word as the blessing that it is. It's easy to take it for granted, but these are your words. (laughs) This is not a regular book. So I pray that as we read it and think about it, that you would be pleased to speak to us. I pray that as you speak to us, we would have ears and hearts open and, and ready to listen, to be instructed, and to be shaped shaped by the power of your word, through the power of your Holy Spirit. In Christ's name, amen. Jonah 3. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. Go to the great city of Nineveh and proclaim to it the message that I give you. And Jonah obeyed the word of the Lord, and he went to Nineveh. Now, Nineveh was a very large city. It took three days to go through it. And with compassion turn from his fierce anger, so that we will not perish. And when God saw what they did, and how they turned from their evil ways, he relented, did not bring on them the destruction that he had threatened. This is the word of the Lord. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of the Lord endures forever." We are, as I mentioned to the children, and as I mentioned in the Lord's Supper meditation, we are talking about repentance this morning. We're talking about repentance this morning because that is what Jonah 3 is about. First, Jonah repents from the belly of the whale. We saw that in Jonah 2, and then the Lord recommissions him to go to Nineveh. And then the city of Nineveh collectively repents, and the Lord extends mercy. That word repent occurs four times just in verses 8 to 10. And the concept of repentance is all over this passage. Repentance, it's kind of an old-fashioned word. Uh, you, I, I never hear it outside of Christian circles, and even within Christianity today, I feel like it's increasingly rare to hear the word repentance. But the word itself is all over the Bible, repentance is not, is not presented as optional, it's not presented as an if-you-feel-like-it type of command. It is central to the Christian faith, and it is therefore vital that we hold fast to this word, that we not lose it or pitch it overboard, but that we make repentance a regular part of our Christian lives. And in order to do that, we need to know what it is. The Hebrew word is shuv. And it literally means, as I just said to our kids, it literally means to turn or to turn back or to return. It has this, 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 this idea of turning built into the Word. Repentance is something that literally, repentance takes place in our mind and in our heart, but metaphorically, repentance is a verb that implies motion. It's a moving verb turning from sin turning toward God and then moving in a Godward direction repentance is a moving verb Jonah's repentance comes when he's at his lowest he's in that we talked about this 2 weeks ago he's in the belly of the whale the whale is descending to the depths of the sea he recognizes that it is his own sin that has put him in this position and he therefore turns to the Lord, and cries out to the Lord in prayer. And so often that's the case. It's when we are at our lowest that we turn from our sinful ways and we start moving in the Godward direction. So the Advent season is just around the corner. The snow has arrived. The winter season is here. And so I'm going to illustrate this point with a with, with an illustration from the story, A Christmas Carol. We're in the season now, I can do this. So, A Christmas Carol, you remember the story? Surely you remember the main character, right? Ebenezer, <laughs> Ebenezer Scrooge is the main character, and uh, he's been a bad man, right? That's, that's the premise of the story, that's how Charles Dickens sets it up. He's been, he's been unkind, he's been selfish for much of his life, He's left pain and hurt in his wake as he travels through life, and he just doesn't seem to care. But then one night, he's brought low, right? He's humbled. He starts high in that story, and at least in his own mind, he's a very high and elevated person, but he needs to be brought low. He's confronted with his own sin. He has to feel the weight of the damage that his selfishness has caused. That's the point of that whole story, of that whole horrible evening that he goes through, right? And finally, when we work through the three different ghosts that visit him, you get to the, the ghost of Christmas future, and do you remember the scene? The ghost of Christmas future brings him to his own gravestone. That's as low as it goes, right? He's, he, he's at his lowest at that point, and it's at that point that the turning happens. You can see it happen when you read the story or when you... Watch a production of it. He says this. He's at his grave, and he says, Men's courses will foreshadow certain ends, to which, if persevered in, they must lead. But, if the courses be departed from, the ends will change. Say it is thus with what you show me. Okay, we don't don't speak that way anymore. I don't know if you followed that. That's an old-fashioned way to talk. But basically, what he's saying is, Look, I recognize now that the... The previous decisions that I have made in my life have put me on a path that is going to culminate in me dying alone and unhappy. I get it. That's the path I put myself on. Just, I'm just going to die a selfish old man alone. But I know that I can change. I see the light now. I get it. I know I can change if I get another chance. I know I could use my life to bless others, if you just give me one more crack at it. That's what he's saying there. I could live differently from here on out. I could turn. For Scrooge, that's his moment of turning. Turning away from his previous life of selfishness, turning towards a new life, a blessing. And from that day forward, his life is different, right? That's what's indicated on the next day when he's being generous to everybody and he's being happy and he's celebrating and he's sharing Right? And the implication is from here on out, he's going to be a different person. The act of turning in his heart led to a real and practical change in his life. Repentance is a motion verb. It's a moving verb. All right, well, that's just a fictional story. And that's not even really in the story when you read it carefully. It's not even really Christian repentance that's happening. Scrooge is not turning to the Lord Scrooge is not crying out for forgiveness to the Lord. That's not how the story goes. But it does illustrate the point. Repentance involves turning from our old ways and beginning to move in a Godward direction. In the case of Jonah, Jonah's at the end of his rope. Jonah turns to the Lord. He cries out in repentance and he starts to move in a Godward direction. How do we know that? Well, because this time... When he receives the exact same dangerous commission from God, this time he obeys. This time he goes to Nineveh. Okay, so that's Jonah's repentance. Now we need to consider the corporate repentance of the Ninevites because that's really what chapter 3 is about. And as we do that, we're going to briefly look at We're going to learn five things about repentance. I know that sounds like a lot, but it's going to go quick. So you're going to have to pay attention. Five things about repentance. Okay, I'll list them for you right now. Number one, repentance begins with God. Repentance begins with God's work in our hearts, right? We don't initiate that. That's a work of the Lord in our hearts to initiate repentance. Number two, repentance entails and requires genuine sorrow for sin. You're not repentant unless you're actually sorrowful for your sin. Number three, repentance includes turning away from that sin. That was the point I made with our kids. Number four, repentance results in turning towards God, right? When we turn from our sin, we have to turn to something. Repentance entails turning to God. And point number five, repentance is always met with mercy, right? We don't have to wonder if I repent, will God receive it? We know that he will. Repentance is always met with mercy. That's really, really good news for sinners such as ourselves. So I'm just going to run through those five quickly, and we're done. Number one, repentance is a divine work of God. If you doubt that, here's what I'm basing that on. Just look at the message that, the Jonah, that Jonah preached. Right? He shows up in Nineveh. Well, what does he do? He walks around. It's a big city, three days to walk across. Has a lot of ground to cover, right? But doesn't mix it up too much. He just has one message. It's brief. <laughs> and, and when you read it in Hebrew, it's just five words. He just showed up in Nineveh and shouted five words, over and over, presumably. Yet 40 days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. Yet 40 days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. That's what he's walking around saying. <laughs> that's, that's, that's hardly a compelling sermon, is it? <laughs> What if I did that all morning? Would, would that be edifying? Would that, would that be encouraging? It's not a great message. It's not. He doesn't even make reference to God in that message. He doesn't tell them what they can do to avoid that judgment. He just announces it. And yet, that message results in city a citywide movement of repentance. To what should we attribute the spirit of repentance that descends upon this wicked city? Well, not to Jonah and not to that five-word message, but to God Himself, who is not limited by the limitations of His messengers. Right in Second Timothy, lest, lest you wonder about this. Second Timothy chapter two and verse twenty-five. God makes it clear. It says, "God may perhaps grant them repentance." leading to the knowledge of truth. God may grant them repentance. God is the one who grants repentance. If we experience repentance, it's not because we heard a great message. It's not because we made a great decision to turn to God. It is because a great God intervened in our lives and gave us a spirit of repentance. Repentance begins with God. Okay, that's point one. Point number two, repentance requires genuine sorrow for sin. Not sorrow because we got caught sinning. Not sorrow because we don't like the consequences of our sin, but sorrow for the sin itself. Right? Every inmate in every prison in the world right now is sorry to be there, but that doesn't mean that they're sorry for having committed their crimes. Right? There's a world of difference between saying, Lord, I hate being in the belly of a whale, so please get me out of here. A difference between that and saying, Lord, I hate it that you gave me an instruction and I disobeyed it, so please forgive me. Those are two different prayers. One is repentant, one is not. Now, an astute observer is going to say, well, wait a minute, Pastor Jason. You're just, you're just trying to make us feel bad for our sins. Exactly. <laughs> That's right. We're, we're supposed to feel bad for our sins. I I am going for that right now. That's part of what repentance is all about. Sin is bad, and when we commit sin against the Holy God, we're supposed to feel bad about that. And if we don't, something's gone wrong. If we don't, then we have not repented of our sin because sorrow is an essential component in true repentance. Repentance. Do the Ninevites feel bad for their sins? Well, read with me verse 5. It says, And the people of Nineveh believed God. They called for a fast. and They put on sackcloth, from the greatest of them to the least of them. They called for a fast. Eating is one of the great pleasures of being a human being. Voluntarily foregoing food is one of the biblical ways of humbling ourselves before the Lord and expressing genuine sorrow for our transgressions. That's not the only reason to fast, but it's one reason to fast, and it's why the Ninevites are fasting. And they put on sackcloth. Sackcloth. Hey, have you ever worn sackcloth? S- sackcloth is just as uncomfortable as it sounds. <laughs> sackcloth is a durable material made of goat's hair, which is extremely uncomfortable. And it is worn during times of mourning. It is, a, it is a tactile w- way of expressing sorrow, right? I'm wearing this super uncomfortable thing as a way to express that I am sorrowful. I am, I am mourning. Do those of us who live under the new covenant need to fast and put on sackcloth when we sin? No. No, we don't. Thanks be to God. No, we don't. Our sins have been atoned for by the blood of God. Of Jesus Christ, but we are still expected to feel remorse and sorrow over our sin. And if we don't feel that, then we have not repented. Okay, the next part of repentance involves turning from our sin, feeling sorrow over our sin, and then turning from our sin, forsaking our sin. Do the Ninevites do this? Yes, they do. Verse 8: Let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. Let everyone turn, repent of his evil way and turn from the violence that is in his hands. Turning from sin means saying, not only am I not going to do this anymore, I'm not even going to look at it. I'm going to turn away from it. The Ninevites were known for their evil ways and for the violence of their hands, right? It's what they did. That was their trademark. We're evil and we do violent things. We hurt people. That was their thing. It's what they were known for. And here they are admitting that. They are expressing sorrow over that. And they are explicitly turning from that. We were like that. We're not going to be like that anymore. Which is exactly what you and I should do When we find sin in our own lives, in our own hearts, what we should not do is make light of it, or pretend it isn't there, or call it by another name. We shouldn't say, ah, well, I'm not perfect, but who is? What are you going to do? And anyways, all my sins are forgiven, so it's really not that big a deal. That kind of casual approach to sin is deadly to our souls. It's not good for our souls. That, that is like letting a tiger wander around your house and saying, well, tigers are beautiful creatures, uh, and if we just stay out of its way, I'm sure we'll be fine. You won't be fine. Don't do that. You won't be fine. Sooner or later, the tiger is going to cause real and lasting damage to you and to your household. It's not a good idea. I recently, that's that illustra- that kind of a goofy illustration, it's on my mind because this past week I read a, a long article about Siegfried and Roy, you know those guys, Siegfried and Roy, the magicians in Las Vegas, they were, um, <laughs> they were famous for incorporating tigers into their act, I, I've never seen their act, I do know what they, they, what they look like and they're, they're, the photos you see of them, there's always a tiger in the, in the picture, they loved tigers. And uh, they, so they had tigers in their act. One of them, I get them mixed up. I don't know which is which, but one of them used to, they, he had like 108 tigers on his compound where he lived, just outside of Las Vegas. They were all free to roam around. They wandered around his house. They came in his, they had free reign. They could come in his bedroom. He, uh, he meditated with a tiger every day, he said. Anyways, he was really into tigers. And uh, they would bring these uncaged tigers on stage. During the show, during the act, and uh, part of the thrill of the act was that there's no cage. There's no cage between the tiger and the performer, but there is also no cage between the tiger and the audience. And in theory, anything could happen, right? And it, 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 that's what made that's what made it exciting. That's what made it compelling. It's the uh, it's exciting to play with danger in a controlled environment. The problem is that when you play with tigers, sooner or later you're going to get bit. You just will. They're not safe. They're not tame. And so, of course, if you didn't already know this, inevitably you, you know this is coming. It happened on October 3rd, 2003. A 380-pound two, a, a tiger named Manticore knocked Roy down to smashed him down, bit him in the neck, and and dragged him off stage, nearly killing him. During the show, dragged him off stage by the neck. He's bleeding profusely and rushed to the hospital. He did survive those injuries, but he never fully recovered from those injuries that he sustained that night. Listen, that's what happens when we pretend that tigers are tame. So often, that's how Christians treat sin. We, we treat sin as if it's a kitten, right? It's just a kitten. It's not able to do any real harm. But sin isn't a kitten. It is a flesh-eating tiger. And we put ourselves in peril when we treat sin lightly. The only safe way to interact with sin is to turn from it. Not to engage it, but to turn from it. And that brings us to our next point. In turning from sin, we need to turn towards something. We can't turn to nothing. We have to be looking somewhere. We need to turn toward God, from sin, toward God. That is repentance. Verse 8 again, it says, But let man and beast be covered with sackcloth, and let them call out mightily to God. That's what the Ninevites are doing when they hear this message. They're humbling themselves, expressing sorrow for sin, fasting, putting on sackcloth, turning from their sin, turning from the violence of their hands, turning from their evil ways and turning towards God. It says, call out mightily to God. Collectively, that is what they did in the city of Nineveh. It's one thing to to find ourselves in the metaphorical belly of a whale and say, well, I'm never doing that again. But that is only a partial turn. We need to turn from sin and turn toward God so that we are facing God and pursuing God, moving in a Godward direction. Repentance is a moving verb. Moving in a Godward direction. We need to fill the void of the sins in our life that we've turned from with the pursuit of righteousness. Right? It was Jesus who said, do you remember when he was talking about this? And he said, when the unclean spirit has gone out of a person, it passes through waterless places, seeking rest, but finds none. And then it says, I will return to my house from which I came. And when it comes, it finds the house empty and swept and put in order. And then it goes out and brings with it seven other spirits, more evil than itself. And they enter and they dwell there. And the last state of that person is worse than the first. Now, I take that to mean that it's not enough to empty our lives of sin, to turn from sin. That's a good start but we also need to fill our lives with God. Here, I, I, Here's here's one example. I know that you've heard me talk about the revival in Wales in 1907 because that was like one of my favorite moments in history. That revival in Wales resulted in about one-fifth of the population of the country coming to faith in Jesus Christ, filling the churches on Sunday morning, filling the country with song and praise. It was just a... a a nationwide movement of the spirit. Well, one practical example of how that played out is that the the mines had, they had to start building new sheds for their tools. Well, Why did they have to do that? Well, these sheds were filled with the mining tools, which belonged to the mining companies, but with the, which the miners themselves would occasionally help themselves to, perhaps justifying the sin of stealing by telling themselves, well, I'm just borrowing it and I'll return it one day. Although that day never seemed to come. Until many of these miners came to faith in Christ, and they turned from their sin, and they turned towards God, and they came under the conviction that those tools that they had borrowed from the mines were actually stolen, and that they needed to be returned And so all of these stolen tools were now being returned and they started filling up the tool sheds to overflowing to the point where many of the mines needed to start building more sheds, up to five times the number of sheds in order to store all of these tools that had been stolen over the years and were finally being returned. It's a small example. It's not really a big deal. But it's real and it's practical. It illustrates the point. When we learn how to repent, it doesn't simply mean praying a particular prayer using particular words as if it's some sort of incantation. But true repentance will result in real and practical change in our lives as we turn from sin and turn towards the Lord and move in a Godward direction. That was point four, and here's the final point our repentance is always met with God's mercy. In the case of the Ninevites, God worked in their hearts through Jonah's message of doom. And then they expressed true sorrow for their sin. They turned from their sin. They turned towards God. They moved in a Godward direction. They cried out to God, and God responded with mercy. Verse 10, when God saw what they did and how they turned from their evil ways, he had compassion. And he did not bring upon them the destruction that he had threatened. That is the true miracle of Jonah. It's, the miracle of Jonah is not that a man was swallowed by a whale, and that he survived three days in the belly of that whale or great fish or whatever it was. That's not the miracle. That is no doubt a miracle, right? Make no mistake. You know, sometimes you read these, these, these articles online about how, explain, like giving a natural explanation of, well, this is, the, this is the type of sea creature that would have swallowed him, and this is how he would have survived for three days. No, it's a miracle. That's how, that's how it happened. It's, it, it's a miracle. It is. But it's not the big miracle of Jonah. It's not. The big miracle of Jonah is that when sinful people, such as Jonah and the Ninevites and me and you, when sinful people cry out to God, God does not just cross his arms and lean back and say, well, too bad, you got yourself into this mess, now you better get yourself out of it. The true miracle of Jonah is that God responds to that prayer with grace and mercy. He was gracious and compassionate toward Jonah and toward the Ninevites, and he will be towards you and I as well. So if you've allowed the tiger of sin to wander around the house of your heart, or maybe today's the day for you to evict that tiger from your life, call it what it is. Whether you've developed sinful patterns of speech in the way that you speak to others or speak about others, or, or whether you've developed sinful patterns of thought where your mind goes places you know it shouldn't go, or whether you've developed sinful behaviors that you know are wrong and yet you still do them, let today be a day of liberation for you. Express sorrow for your sin. Sin is sin. Express sorrow over it. Turn from it. Run to God experience his grace, and continue to move in a Godward direction. Let's pray together. Lord, thank you for repentance. It's a good word. It's a good word. It's one that we will not let go of or give up. It's an important part of the Christian life. It's what you call your people to. When we, when we fail, when we fall short which you have already said that we will, that you've provided us a way, a way to turn from that, a way to be restored unto fellowship with you and with one another. You've given this gift to us of repentance. Thank you. I pray that you would help us to engage in it. I pray that you would shine a spotlight on areas of sin in our lives or in our church, If there are areas that we need to turn from, please show those to us. We need that information. And then please break our hearts. Help us to feel genuinely sorrowful, not not over the consequences of sin, although that can certainly be uncomfortable sometimes, but to feel real sorrow over the fact of sin and to turn from it, not to play with it, not to think it's harmless, not to call it something other than it is, but to turn from it and to turn towards you and to move in a Godward direction, to move towards you, to fill our lives and to fill our church with righteousness, with holiness, with joyful obedience to your law. And we are so grateful, Lord, that you are a God who is slow to anger and quick to forgive, merciful and compassionate. Thank you that we don't have to wonder, but we always can know that when we return to you, when we turn from sin and call upon your name, that you're eager to hear, to forgive, and to restore. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.